the joy that we have in our relationship with you. It is in, indeed a joy to be able to worship you together and uh, to prioritize this moment uh, with you. And thank you, Father, for um, such a wonderful opportunity. Pray that you would open our hearts, uh, open our minds, help us to be recept receptive to your word, uh, both now in the teaching hour and also in the preaching hour. May you glorify your name as uh, our hearts are encouraged. We pray these things uh, for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> Sunday school may be dismissed. <coughs> Um, can I just get some assistance there, please? Are we plugged in? I'm connected, yeah. There you go. <clears throat> All right. Well, welcome. It's good to have you with us as we begin our series in the Old Testament. Um, so this morning is not a walk through uh, the books of the Old Testament. We, we begin with a meta perspective, a big picture overview. <clears throat> and... Uh, the two aspects that I want to look at is motivations to study the Old Testament and then some significance of certain passages just to whet your appetite as we, as we work towards uh, looking at the Old Testament. So um, th those are the two categories that we will, we will look at. Um, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says, Now these things happen to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has uh, come. They were written for our instruction. That's the Old Testament. In other words, the experiences of those who lived in the Old Testament period will not be the experiences of those who live in the New Testament period. But those things that took place were written down so that we can learn from their mistakes. The Old Testament is more than just a few moral or moral examples that has been placed together. It teaches theology. It teaches us how to respond uh, to God. <clears throat> Romans 15, 4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. It's interesting that in both sections, chapter 15 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul deals with interpersonal problems. Church, the, both churches have relational issues. 
And he points them back to the Old Testament to learn from the lessons of the Old Testament saints. One deals with grumbling and uh, ungratefulness, and the other one with how God orchestrated the events of history to accomplish his plan and uh, purpose. So, having begun in the New Testament, we're going to jump over to the Old Testament now. The Old Testament obviously exists for uh, our learning and our instruction. Now, I'm going to go through this. Um, I normally go through things very quickly, but if you want me to slow down, repeat something, I will. If you have any questions, please feel free to ask it. If it does relate to something that you've read in Genesis, that can wait till the next time. Um, but if you want to share something that you've learned, and uh, uh, there was a reading that was due for this week. No Bible reading, but there was a reading. Um, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament, I think, was one of it, or um, something to that effect. If you've read that and you want to share something that you've, you've gleaned from that, I would encourage you to share that as well. Um, so those of you who are on the mics, the roaming mics, make sure that that is available. So this morning I want to cover two parts. <clears throat> the struggles with Old Testament study and then the motivation that will help us to appreciate the Old Testament more. Um, under motivation there will be two uh, components and under those components there will be at least ten. So <laughs> um, yeah, I never make it easy. Having the right foundation and having the right approach. But let's start with the struggles. Why is reading or studying the Old Testament so difficult? Why do we find it so hard? Anybody want to venture to answer that? Yes. Good point. Yeah. Do you know why it's repeated? You maybe want to say that again. They start Um <laughs> The genealogies yeah. are can often be tedious to read yeah. through. Um and it's like all the sacrifices and how, and the tabernacle and how it was constructed and yeah. it's yeah. So. Now if you grew up in a brethren church you would know that the <laughs> The tabernacle has huge significance, all the colors. and <clears throat> Yeah, no, it, obviously there can be challenges when you read of all the lists of names, and it seems to be endless, but they exist for a reason. And uh, later on, I'll show you the significance of the genealogies. Um, and the tabernacle, I don't cover that this morning, but when we do get to Exodus and um, Leviticus, you'll see the significance in why. We need to pay attention to that. Good, good point. Why do you think? Why else do you think it is difficult for us to study the Old Testament? <clears throat> well, I think because Moses had a lot of breath. I mean, chapter fifty of Genesis is a long way to go. You know, whereas New Testament, you can read it a book in an hour. <laughs> Old Testament's like, you, my bro, you know, we're getting it done. So, so I think it's a lot of reading for many. That's maybe why it's tiresome. It's true. Uh, there's a lot of lot of breath to, to cover. Um, after Peter, then Cameron. And Gaynor. Yeah. So I think uh, I think what has a significant impact is the fact that we're reading about thousands of years of different time timeline, different geographical settings, mm. different <laughs> cultural nuances. So uh, we almost have to think ourselves into a totally different uh, people group to see the significance of things that are used to explain things in the Old Testament. Mm. 
Yeah, it's good. Well, well done. Um, Cameron and then my wife. Thank you. Uh, so I had two reasons, and Peter just said the first reason is that distance between us culturally and historically sure, and everything. Yeah. And then the second reason is that it's much more narrat narratival, I don't know mm. if that's a good word, but um, you know, in, if you look at the New Testament, there are imperatives given. Yeah. And you look in the Old Testament, it's a story that's being told. Yep. And now you've got to try and figure out now what is it? That well, well said. Yeah. That, that can be hard, and uh, hopefully... When I get to narrative as, as theology, that would make a little bit more sense. Go ahead. I think for some people, they think Christ came in the New Testament, and the New Testament teaches us how to live. How can the Old Testament teach yeah. us how to live if he's come then? Why read the Old Testament? Yeah. yeah. So sometimes, and I've heard that before, that I'm a New Testament saint. Why do I need to read the Old Testament? Um, well, the Old Testament is difficult, and Chandon is right. There's a lot of chapters. Um, you get through 50 chapters of Genesis, you wonder, sure, what's next? And then what do you have? 32, is it uh, Exodus? Uh, forget how much, I think it's 32, and then you have 33 for Leviticus. Um, it, it's lengthy. Uh, so my Old Testament professor says, um, the same way you would eat an elephant, that's how you read the Old Testament. How do you eat an elephant? One One piece at a time, yeah. Uh, or a big pork, uh, one piece at a time. Uh, anyway, so that is, all of those things are true, and we struggle with that. Um, but let me give you some um, three simple reasons why we struggle. We have a wrong approach, we have a wrong understanding, and we have wrong expectations. We have a wrong approach because we have a wrong understanding, which is predicated on a wrong expectation. And Cameron was... Uh, heading in that direction. New Testament gives imperatives. It tells us exactly what we should do. When we come to the Old Testament, we wonder, okay, now, so what? Wh why, why is this important? How does it apply uh, to me? Gaynor was also on target when she says we read the New Testament, and a lot of people read the New Testament first, and then they reinterpret what they see in the Old Testament. So that is the wrong approach. Yes, the New Testament came after the, the Old Testament, but the Old Testament moves forward. History moves linearly, in a linear direction. There's no such word. Um, so it moves forward. So even though Christ comes, he fulfills Old Testament. He doesn't rewrite the Old Testament. And a lot of covenantals, um, have this wrong because they look at the New Testament and say, well, there, Christ fulfills it, and so therefore we have to reinterpret. We have to have a new look at the Old Testament. That wrong approach or part of the problem is that it produces a wrong understanding. And so we see the Old Testament differently than what the Old Testament saints and the New Testament writers saw the Old Testament. So when Jesus speaks about the Old Testament, does he reinterpret it? Not at all. He sees it as historical narrative that has meaning and significance. One of the greatest <clears throat> challenges, let me put it this way. The Old Testament sets up for the New Testament. The Old Testament is significant for understanding 
some of the elements in the New Testament. The New Testament provides color to the Old Testament, but never reinterprets the Old Testament. So the, thirdly, the wrong expectation. We read the Old Testament with a man-centered approach. So some of the problems is because our approach is wrong, understanding is wrong, but also we expect the wrong thing from the Old Testament. Yes, it is narrative. 90% of it is narrative. Even the uh, prophetical writing, some parts of it are narrative. And so it does provide some challenge for us. We are looking for personal, practical points of living. That's not how the Old Testament is written. All of that which you are looking for is written in a narrative format or in a prophetical format or in a poetic format. This application in the Old Testament, God just um, puts it in a different way. And so hopefully when I get to it, you will see that narrative has theology, that um, there's significance in the Psalms and the relevancy for our lives. Theology is rich in the Old Testament and can produce a healthy view of God. When we don't have a healthy view of the Old Testament, we don't have a healthy view of God. In fact, I hope to get to it in Exodus chapter 20. I want to point out something that we often abuse because we live in a very busy environment. We are always busy, always doing something. <clears throat> Firstly, let me provide um, motivations as the foundational uh, rationale behind studying the Old Testament. Number one, have a high view of the relevancy of the Old Testament. How do we correct this wrong view, wrong approach, and the wrong understanding of the Old Testament? Well, it is highly relevant. Now, it takes a little bit of work, but when you see it, it will make sense. Uh, we forget that the Old Testament writers do not just provide information for the sake of providing information, but they provide information to an original audience so that that audience can apply it. Often, obedience is seen in worship, repentance, a return to God, um, faithfulness, or the like. You can add to the list. So when Paul says that these things are written for our instruction, we should pay attention to how things are written in the Old Testament. I'm stalling so that you can write it down. All right. Um, let me give you examples of the relevancy of the Old Testament, and hopefully I can make a connection to how we understand things today. Psalm 42. Go over to Psalm 42. <clears throat> I just want to highlight a few significant elements within some of these uh, Old Testament passages to give you a taste of what to look for when you read the Old Testament. <clears throat> Psalm 42, I'm going to read 1 and 2, verse 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing waters, so my soul pants after you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? 
Wow. Who wrote this song? Okay, it's on my notes. Sons of Korah. Who are the sons of Korah? The sons of Korah. It's pretty obvious, right? Go to number 16. Why is that significant? Most of us know Psalm 42, but seldomly do we make a connection to the significance of Psalm 42 and the authors of Psalm 42. Now notice in verse 1 of number 16. Now Korah, the son of Izzah, son of Koath, son of Levi, and Dathan, Abiram, and the sons of Eliab, and the son of Peleth, son of Reuben, took men, and they arose before Moses with a number of people, of, of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men, assembled together against Moses and against Aaron, saying to them, You have gone too far, for all the congregation are holy. Stop with these instructions. We are fine as we are. Every one of them. And Yahweh is among them. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of um, the Lord? Sorry, I read it wrong. That you is Moses and Aaron speaking to them. When, uh, no, I think I have it right. It's, it's they, them speaking to Moses and Aaron. And when Moses heard it, he fell on his face and said to Korah and all his company, in, in the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. I think you know the rest of the story, right? Um, God calls them to appear before him. And what happens? God judges them and they die. Uh, listen to these words, verse 12. And Moses sent to, uh, sent to call Dathan and Abiram, uh, sons of El uh, uh, Eliab, and they said, we will not come up. That's a refusal to obey. Take note of these words. We will not come up or we will not appear. Verse 31, and as soon as they had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and their goods. They went down alive, verse 33 says, and 35, and fire came out from Yahweh and consumed the 250 men offering the Incense. God was angry. Why? Because Korah and his entourage decided to challenge God by challenging the leadership. Now go back to Psalm 42. What was the repeated words in number 16? Appear, come up, draw near. As a deer pants for streams, so my soul longs for you. 
Lord, I want to be with you. Look at the next line. My soul thirsts for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Do you think the memory, these are the sons that survived that day. Do you think the memory of their refusal to appear before God still lingers in their minds? I think so. These sons of that man, Korah, remember that he and the 250 refused to come before God. We will not appear before him. We will not come before him. And here they say, when shall I come and appear before God? Same words in the positive. What's the significance? The sin of the father was not repeated by the sons. You know, you've heard the theological charismatic version of um, generational curses. You know, so if your father commits a sin and your father's father committed a sin, guess what? You're also going to be enslaved to that sin. Well, this breaks that. Korah sinned against God, but his sons refused to do the same sin. In fact, they remember that day so much so that they repeat the words that their father said on that day. We will not appear before God. What's the significance? They learned their lesson. They learned from the mistakes of their father. Uh, that's pretty relevant. That, that's pretty obvious. Now, I don't know if you've ever made that connection, but if you just think about the implications for us today, learn from the mistakes of others. Learn from the errors of your father or your brother or your sister or your aunt or your mother. Learn from the sins that they've committed and look how their lives look. Don't do it. Sons of Korah realize that the best thing for them is a devotion to God. That's all in Psalm 42 as you make that historical connection. It is pretty relevant. Another element of relevancy is something that we often overlook. Look at num uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. <clears throat> I know there's going to be pushback. So I know we love our personal time, but <clears throat> let's look at the re relevancy of Exodus chapter 20. Verse 11. For in six days the Lord Yahweh made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. What is the significance of that verse? Why is Moses inserting it here in this um, list, these commandments? In fact, you know that it's never called um, the Ten Commandments as we have it in our. Bibles. Why do you think it's significant? Well, context. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. 
But the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it, you shall not do any work. You and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Why? Because the standard has been set in creation. Six days God worked and then on the last day, what did he do? He ceased from working, translated as rested. Hmm. What is the context here? What is Moses trying to tell the children of Israel? <laughs> Sorry, what? He does. God establishes a work week. Six days. Not four or five. Six days you are allowed to be busy, but one day will be reserved for God. Now, we are not Jews. We don't have a Sabbath, but we do have what? A Lord's Day. Same principle applied to a New Testament believer. You can work all you want. Six days, go ahead and enjoy your Saturday. Now, most of us wouldn't do that because we end up on Friday. But you have six days to work yourself out. But when it comes to honoring God on his day, what does it require? Worship. You cease from all that you're doing and you give your attention to God. That's the point. God establishes how our lives need to be conducted. Now, we are busy people. Some of us work seven days a week because we work for the government. Unfortunately. As much as we hold to the fact that you need to honor your father and your mother today, right? We hold to that law. As much as we, we, we hold to the, the, the command that you, need, you should not murder. Why is it when it comes to the Sabbath, we say, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm not a Jew, not at all. It doesn't apply to me. Uh, hang on. So everything else you can say, yeah, you, you see that, that that is true. We shouldn't lie. We shouldn't murder. We shouldn't uh, um, covet. But the Sabbath, the day of rest, does not apply. I think Jesus established a new day for his new people, which is the Lord's day. Does it have relevance? By all means. If you have not made that connection yet, then how do you worship? How do you prioritize God? He has his day. So the Sabbath is not for us. But the Lord's day is. We are to honor the Lord. We are to prioritize worship. Why? Because it's established in creation. Give God his day. Now, I know some of you are doctors and you have to work on, on a Sunday. We will pray for you. <laughs> for, just joking. Um, we don't realize how the Old Testament has relevancy for our lives today. Very much so. Any questions or comments yet? No? Um, let's move on. Okay, I'm just jump over that. So number one, I have a high view of the relevancy of the Old Testament. Number two, understand the profundity of the Old Testament. I'm going to go through this very quickly. Um, so I'm going to read it and then move on. 
It reveals the nature of God. Hmm. There's an interesting dynamic that takes place in Genesis chapter 3 that a lot of saints do not want to recognize. After the fall, what does God do? It's very simple. After the fall, what takes place? It says, in the cool of the day, what? God came and called to man. Often they say, well, this is, it happens all the time. What did God call? Adam. Adam, Mania, where are you? I don't know about you, but that, that is theologically significant. Why? Because when Adam fell, he did not run to God. Consider that. When Eve fell, she did not run to God. When both of them partook of the fruit, it wasn't an apple, partook of the fruit, what happened? They blamed each other and the animal kingdom. Oh, it's not me. It's that thing and it's that woman, but it's never me. They never looked to God. They never repented. It was God that provided for them. It is God that called out to Adam. I think there's theology in that. When man sins, what do we do? We run away from God. We don't seek God in our sin. It is God that comes to seek us. Is there not a verse that says, He came to seek and save the lost? There's significance in that. Because it is not man that seeks God. It is God that came to seek man. Yes, the Old Testament reveals the nature of God right there in the garden shows that God is a seeking and a saving God. How do I know that? Because he provides a covering for their sin. Secondly, it uncovers the plan of God. Somebody asked, why did God put the tree in the garden? Yeah, well, God had a plan. The tree is part of the plan. It's very simple. If the tree is not there, what does not take place? The fall. If the fall does not take place, what does not take place? The cross. The birth. The resurrection. The crown. In order for a crown to exist, there needs to be a tree in the garden and a tree in the garden. It's significant because it uncovers the Old Testament Uncovers God's plan. Number three, it purports the purposes of God. I love this. In the garden, God reveals his intention for man, right? He says, let us create them in, man, in our image and in our likeness so that why? They may have dominion and reign. Over the fish, over the land, over everything that is created. God created man to be a dominion citizen. Somebody to reign. Uh, there's a relevancy in that. Why? Because today the animal kingdom and the environmental kingdom reigns over us. You can't do this, you can't do that because, oh, we've got we to care for the plants and the, the atmosphere. I was watching... Um, a clip, this is what I do in my spare time, when um, 
they were interviewing these environmentalists and th these profundants and, and smart intellectual people about how much uh, carbon is sufficient. And the one guy stumped them, he says, uh, asked them, how much carbon is in the atmosphere? Well, I would say probably about 1.5. And the other one is like, I would go about 0.7. The other one's like, yeah, I don't know, maybe 0.9. And the guy says, well, based on current research, it's only 0.04. So what's the problem? It's an ideology. It's not reality. Thirdly, fourthly, D, it highlights the standard of God. We looked at Genesis, now we are in Exodus and Leviticus. It highlights the standard of God. God is a standard. And he shows to them by the erection of the tabernacle, you can't just waltz up any way you want. He provides sacrifices to show them that I have a standard. I've got a requirement. You, you are not forgiven by your own means. This relationship between you and me is predicated on a covenant that I've created. In order for you to stay in this covenant, you have to meet my standard. Exodus reveals that. It demonstrates the holiness of God. What book is that? Leviticus. God is holy. And so he requires his people to be holy. He's got a perfect standard. And in order for you to have a right relationship with him, what does he expect of you? Perfection. So what does he do when he requires perfection? He shows them that they are inadequate. They cannot meet his standard. And so... We move on to the fact that the Old Testament delineates the grace, the mercy, and the wrath of God. When you can't meet the standard, he's going to judge your sin. But in that, he provides grace and mercy. He judges, but he also forgives. It explains the love and the faithfulness of God. We are in Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. God remains faithful to his promise. When you get to the book of Ruth, God preserves the line of David before the line of David is a line. That's God's faithfulness to a promise that there will be a man on the throne of David and he will reign over his people. God moves history along to accomplish his goals. Um, I sent the PDF to Byron, so if you do want this, you're welcome to have it. Um, I'm sure you can put it on the group. H, it portrays the justice of God. Read the prophets. You see how much God will judge the world, how much God will judge um, the nations. Why? Because God needs to justify His righteousness. He will not let sin go unpunished. It perpetuates the program of God. There is nothing that takes place in history without God being part of it. It percolates the justification of God. God upholds his plan and his character. God will never defy who he is. And so he works consistently with himself, even in allowing sin, even in the case of Job, God justifies himself. It magnifies the covenants of God. Now, there is no such thing as theological covenants. 
If you read the Bible clearly, you will find covenants in it. God's covenants with Abraham, with um, Israel, uh, with the priests, with David, with the church. Any other covenant is not a covenant of God. It unfolds the majesty of God. Read the book of Psalms. The beauty, the majesty, the glory of God is all magnified in one collection. It predicts the seed and the kingdom. From Genesis to Revelation, this is a consistent theme. There will be a seed and he will have a kingdom. There will be a seed and he will reign. Progressive Revelation unveils this. It presents the character of God. Cover that already. In other words, the Old Testament is rich in theology. It, it's not just a group of stories that has been put together. It demonstrates a theological conviction that there is a God who is sovereign over all and is executing his plan. And we are blessed to have him as our God. Questions? Comments? There's obviously more you can add to that. Right, let's move on. Sovereignty, grace, promise, fulfillment, omnipotence, omniscience, kingship, independence, mercy, steadfast love and patience are all put on vibrant display so God's people could worship, love, and obey Him more. That's the Old Testament. Tell me that is not relevant. That is absolutely relevant. The more you see of God, the more you should respond to Him in worship, obedience, and love. This is why the Old Testament is important. And these are just a few reasons, but these are essential motivations for why we need to study the Old Testament because it should drive us to worship. It should drive us to love and it should drive us to obedience. Now, if you cut that out, you don't spend time in the Old Testament, you're not going to have a robust understanding of the glory of God, the majesty of God, and your need for obedience. <clears throat> when you read, don't just read for the sake of reading. I've asked you to read Genesis, or I've asked you to read the Bible, the Old Testament, but don't just read for the sake of reading. Look for these theological points that the author is making and let it inform you about what you should think about God. The Old Testament is a revelation of God. Right. Questions before I move on? Uh, Mike? I'm not going to finish. So uh, we know that the New Testament is relevant to the church today. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, you say the New Testament impacts how we live. Yeah. We know the Old Testament is the basis for us uh, forming a theology and doc doctrines that carry over in the New Testament. Yeah. But is the Old Testament significant for national Israel today? Yes, very much so. Um, may it's a simple answer. I know that there's challenges with how, how people um, think of uh, Israel today. The people of Israel has always been God's people. He chose them. Um, before they came into, into being, I think it's Deuteronomy 
where uh, God says, it's not because you were the greatest amongst the nations, not because you were righteous, it's because I loved you. I chose to love you. And so God puts his love on them. And here's the thing. If God has commended his love, he never retracts it. So he's committed in his covenant to his people. And so therefore, they remain his people. They are now under judgment. And that's why you have the turmoil in Israel. If you read the Old Testament, let me put it this way. If you read the Bible, you know that this is supposed to happen. Israel is under the hand of God because they rejected the Messiah. And they will be under the hand of God until the Messiah returns and or Israel repents. This is not them yet. So, um, yes, to answer your question, yes, go ahead. Please help me comprehend this. So God knew that man will fall. Yes. Before men fell. Yes. And then he provided a plan as an alternative. No. But, oh. Okay. He didn't provide okay. the plan in a response to the fall. The plan existed before, before the, fall. the fall. Yes. But he had the ability to stop the fall before the fall happened. If God wanted to, yes. But the plan is that the fall would be part of it. Uh, if you followed my logic is without the fall, you don't have the incarnation. There's no promise of the seed if there's no fall. If there's no fall, there's no incarnation, there is no cross, there is no resurrection, and there is no crown. There is no future glory for the majesty of the son who became a man. So in order for Jesus to become a man, I should say Christ become a man, there needs to be the fall. So yes, it is part of God's plan. I know we struggle with this, but that's the reality. It is part of God's plan because without it, there is no savior. Man doesn't need a savior if there is no fall. Make sense? Sure. It's, yeah. it's hard. I, I'm sorry. I hope it's okay to, okay. to, um, to, uh, to, you know, to struggle with this, as you're saying. Yeah. So, you, you, so why do we blame man for having fallen then? Because oh, wow. Why, why do we blame man? What did God say to Adam? I think it was God who said to, to him, what have you done? In fact, he asked the woman the same question. What have you done? And then to the serpent, what have you done? They are all complicit in the act of the fall, but it doesn't negate that God's plan still existed. God is not the causer of the sin of man, but he um, uses that to bring about his plan. So I just want to finish that thought. Uh, so God, so the fall of man is included in the eternal purposes and plans of God so that salvation could be what it is and we can be reconciled to God. But we cannot hold God culpable for sin or for the fact that men fell. Men fell. Mm. Yeah. We need to make that closure. Otherwise, in we fact, be God's not responsible for the fall sure. because it's part of his plan. He's when God, yeah, you're right. God excludes himself from culpability. And James actually says that... Um, God can never tempt anybody to sin. It's, it's, and then he says that um, temptations come from us, from our own hearts. And so what he does is he shows the nature of God in that there's no error or sin in God to cause man to sin. But we in ourselves, because we have a sin nature, we desire sin and that causes um, our pursuit of sin. So God is never the causer of, of evil or sin, but he does use it for his glory. And purpose. Okay. Uh, just, just to come back to um, the fact that God chose Israel and he will never ever let them go. In Samuel, I'm not 100% sure, um, the people ask Samuel, please, we, we want a king like all the other nations. Yeah. 
And Samuel was very, very cross about this whole situation. And he came to the Lord. And he said to the Lord, this is what happened. And God said to him, just remember that they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They rejected, they rejected me. me. Yeah. And even from there, God proved that he never, ever um, forget or forgot about Israel. Yeah. And it's still the same today and will always be. Yeah, amen. Um, there's, there's quite a few verses in the Old Testament that indicate that God has made a covenant with David. And he will not uh, forsake the covenant. He's made a covenant with Israel. And it is not um, revocable. Uh, go ahead. Did you want to say something? Yeah. Last comment, because I need to move on. Yeah, I just wanted to mention um, uh, Acts uh, 2.23 describes it beautifully. Where it says, this Jesus uh, delivered up according to the definite plan and full knowledge of God. And then it says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless sure. men. So... It's God's plan, but man is culpable for his act, yeah, yeah, murdering Jesus. But yes. it was God's plan was God's to send plan. the Son so that he would die. Yeah. But man murdered the Son of God. Yeah, let's move on. I'm going to cover one of these points. We have about 10 minutes left. And so um, I'm going to take about five of that 10. The right approach <clears throat> helps us to make the biblical connections. Um, the Bible is. Highly intertextual. Now, maybe a new word for you. Intertextuality means that the Bible interweaves, it connects with each other. Um, there's an, I think it's in Logos, I saw it the other day, uh, where it, can, it shows you how the passages are connected. Um, Old Testament scholar Dr. Chow says that um, the Old Testament writers quote and freely use other writers one in every 10 verses that is a lot that is huge that means that they are interacting with previous writings much more frequently than we are aware um, i mentioned this before the old testament sets up for the new testament for instance exodus chapter 34 the self-declaration of god to Moses, verse 6, and Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, declaring the state that God exists in, and truth, our translations say faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands um, Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children uh, to the third and fourth generation. There's two things that is, highlight, that is highlighted here. God presents himself as merciful, gracious, and truthful. Remember that. Merciful, gracious, and truthful. Go to John chapter 1. <clears throat> Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. We have seen his glory, <clears throat> glory as of the only, the only son from the father. What son is not in there, but it's the only one from the father, full of 
what? Grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried, <clears throat> cried out, This is he whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. In other words, he's higher than I am because he was before me. For from his fullness, this is the one who comes before me, from his fullness, we have all received what? Grace upon grace for the law. Hmm, interesting, he makes a connection to Moses. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God the only God, in other words, has seen God, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. What is he saying? That there's a revelation in our midst. Who's that revelation? Jesus. What is he revealing? The Father, I should say. Who is he revealing? The Father. What is he revealing about the Father? He is like the Father in that he has what? Grace and truth. John makes the connection to Moses. I didn't. That is a New Testament connection to the passage in the Old Testament where God presents himself as one who has grace, mercy, and truth. I, mean, I don't know about you, but that gives me goosebumps. God demonstrates that he's the same God who dealt with Israel, and he's the same God now who's creating a new people for himself. Maybe I can cover this one more. Psalm 23. <clears throat> Who knows what Psalm 23 is about? Come on. Say it. Uh, I don't know what you said. The shepherd who is God. Go over to Ezekiel 34. The word of Yahweh came to me, this is Ezekiel, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says Yahweh, God, our shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep. Verse 5, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with no one to search and seek for them. Hmm. Verse 10, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hands. Put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue or deliver or save my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Verse 11, thus says the Lord God. Behold. I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Hmm. Where do we get the analogy of shepherd from? Psalm 23, go to John chapter 10. Hmm. 
Verse 1, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. It's not a true shepherd. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 6, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. Who is he speaking about? The false shepherds, the Pharisees and the scribes. Sounds familiar? But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and, and out and find pasture. The thief comes, on, comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. You can read the rest. What Jesus does here is so significant. He bases what he wrote, uh, what he says on Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34 bases what he writes on what? Psalm 23. That is called intertextuality. Jesus is saying that I'm the one who's the true shepherd. Who is he equating himself with? God. Because God in the Old Testament says that I am the shepherd of the sheep. There is tremendous significance to this. I was going to go to Mark chapter 6, but you can read that for yourself. With Jesus, he sees them spread out, scattered out in a wilderness, hungry. That's imagery from Ezekiel 34. And Jesus tells his disciples, go and feed them. But they can't because there's nothing. They're out in the wilderness and they say, Lord, where are we going to get food to feed them? And Jesus sets them down in pastures. Hmm. And Jesus takes the loaves and the fish and he breaks it up. And what does he do? He feeds them like sheep. And he says, um, they are like sheep without a shepherd. Where does that come from? Jesus makes a connection to Ezekiel 34. Again, over and over, the shepherd uh, uh, analogy is theology. It demonstrates that God had a plan and he executes that plan and he demonstrates that plan through one word. I have a shepherd. I am that shepherd and I will show you that shepherd in Jesus. I hope that whets your appetites a little. When we get to genealogies next time, you will see the significance of genealogies. But I hope that that is somewhat helpful. Our time is up. I'm not going to take any questions or comments, but keep reading and we will follow on from this and um, walk right into Genesis next time.